This is the Voices in Health Law podcast, brought to you by the American Bar Association Health Law Section. And I'm your host, Jeff Warsberg, based in San Antonio, Texas. I'm also a section leader and co-chair of the Washington Health Law Summit. Today, I will be discussing captive insurance with Kenneth White of Willis Towers Watson, based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Before we begin, I would like to get a disclosure out of the way. None of the views or comments expressed in this podcast represent the position of the American Bar Association, any section, division, or form thereof, nor do they constitute any expression or any position of my law firm or the issues discussed by today's speaker. So with that, uh, welcome Kenny. Uh, for those of you who, who don't know Kenny, uh, he is the National Managed Care Practice Leader for Willis Towers Watson. Uh, so Kenny, maybe we'll just start. Why don't you talk a little bit about your background uh, before we jump into the nuts and bolts of captive insurance and why it's so critical to healthcare in the United States and, and frankly, around the world? Certainly. Um, I'm a healthcare lawyer by trade. I practiced law in Florida and nationally uh, for 30 years before joining Willis Harris Watson seven and a half years ago. Um, I do not practice law at the moment. Uh, I am essentially the senior consultant for a global insurance brokerage company uh, in issues related to managed care. And most of my private practice was aimed at issues related to, to managed care as well. Well, this should be a fascinating discussion. And I think the, the great place to start is let's talk about what is captive insurance? Why is it so critical to healthcare? I think, I think most, uh, many would be surprised at, at how critical it is to the infrastructure of, of our system. Um, think about it as uh, it, it is an insurance company that is simply owned by one or a very few people or entities. Um, it is generally treated by most states that have domiciliary laws or foreign governments that have domiciliary laws. As a standard insurance company, it has different regulatory um, issues that pertain to it because of the nature of the company, but it's an insurance company. Think of it as you having disability insurance. You pay disability premiums probably quarterly, you pay them every year over a 30 or 40 year professional life, you hope you never become disabled. But at the end of that 40 years, you go back and add up all of the money that you paid to a disability insurance company, you'd like to have that money back. So in this way, a captive insurance company allows an entity or group of entities to basically retain the risk that they would normally transfer to the commercial insurance market, retain it themselves, pay themselves a premium, um, build up underwriting profits, uh, have tax benefits related to that as well, and there are other benefits for it. But you're basically betting on yourself. Uh, obviously, if there are claims, it's an insurance company and has to pay out. But Otherwise, you would be paying a premium year after year after year to a commercial insurance carrier that you may never recover anything. And insurance is an asset to particularly large corporations. They treat it as assets now. Uh, and if it doesn't have a return, meaning you're not getting your money back at some point in time, then it's a wasted asset. So they'd rather have the money in their own company that they own in order to uh, transfer that risk to themselves. 
So let me ask a, a basic question. Is one of the other benefits to this having greater control over claims, right? Instead of, of having someone else deciding which you'll fight, when you'll fight, how you'll fight, et cetera, do you have greater control over that as well? Yes, you certainly do. Terms and conditions in the insurance policy can be written by the captive. There are multiple ways of handling this. You, you have a cell captive, which essentially is one captive owned by one person or group that has multiple cells that are segregated for different entities or different risks or different subsidiaries of the same company. Or you have a single parent captive, which is just an insurance company owned by one entity into which you put whatever lines of coverage you want. You can have a group captive where there are multiple entities that own it. Uh, there is a thing called a risk retention group, which is an RRG, which is a different animal than a normal captive. It is regulated differently. It is a group captive where all owners have to be insureds and all insureds have to be owners. And it's federally regulated as opposed to state regulated. But there are different ways to skin the cat, but it's all basically the same thing where you can write your own terms and conditions. Uh, and then you have more control over how the claims are handled. And so let's actually, you just referenced this, but let, let's talk about regulation. How are captive entities regulated? You mentioned state, you mentioned federal, so maybe that's a good place to start. All right, just jump back to the, it's an insurance company. Most insurance regulation is at the state level. Um, so other than RRGs, which are regulated at the federal level, um, some reinsurance, which is regulated federal level or the state level or in a foreign uh, domicile, depending upon where the reinsurance company is, the domicile of the insurance company regulates the insurance. The insurance is not regulated in the same way that, say, a managed care company that has payment obligations for health care benefits is regulated. Many states that those are entities are regulated like other insurance companies in some states, Florida, California, others, they are regulated differently um, by the same entity, but differently uh, because they have different, uh, some like Florida, for instance, doesn't consider a managed care company to be an insurance company. Uh, it's regulated like an insurance company, but it's not. They have to have RBC or risk-based capital requirements, IBNR uh, incurred but not reported, reserves available to pay benefits that may come in over the next 18 months. So you have to stack up reserves to cover those things. So the regulation of that entity is very, very um, extensive. A captive insurance company is not regulated in that way. Uh, it, it's generally speaking, the only people that are going to be hurt if a captive insurance company fails is the entity that owns it. Um, it becomes an operational loss or, or problem for the parent, just as it would have been before you had a captive insurance company. So they're not regulated the same way. But if it's a domiciled uh, uh, insurance company in the Cayman Islands or Bermuda, those entities regulate them. If it's in London, it's uh, regulated in the UK. Um, the top uh, state regulation, I mean, state domiciles are Vermont. Utah, South Carolina, Tennessee, Hawaii, there's a few others, uh, 30, I think, of the 
the states and the District of Columbia currently have domiciliary laws. Not every state has a law that permits you to have a captive insurance company. So they're regulated at that level. If Vermont, Delaware, those are two really big ones. Those are considered mature domiciles where they've been doing this for a long period of time. The regulators are very well attenuated. It's like trying to um, have your incorporation for a company in Delaware because of the laws related to corporate existence in Delaware versus some other state. So people will use Vermont or um, those other states that I mentioned because those are mature locations. Uh, a number of states have recently passed domicile laws. Washington state just passed one earlier this year. Um, so uh, people want to bring that type of business into their state for revenue purposes, as well as convenience of, of entities that are located there. So I think it, we, we've given a nice background and, and to captives and why it, it can make some business sense, but let's, let's really get down to it now in, in healthcare. So let's start with providers. Why does a captive make sense to providers and what type of providers tend to, to have their own captive? Most providers that have captives are uh, hospitals or health systems. There are some large physician groups um, that have captives. Um, groups, large ones, Mednax, uh, Envision, it'd have to be of size. But it, it's typically a, a vehicle used by large health systems that generally have thousands of employees. So for the two primary reasons for having one, if you're a healthcare provider of that site, is either PL, your medical malpractice coverage, or your workers' comp. So you can put workers' comp through a captive. Um, you can have your own employee health plan through a captive as opposed to a self-insured health plan or a commercially insured plan. You can run it through a captive. Um, that's rare, but it's done. Uh, lots of people will put the worker's comp through a captive and their medical malpractice coverage through a captive. Uh, it allows them a great deal of flexibility with regards to terms and conditions. It allows them a great deal of flexibility with regard to compliance with state financial responsibility laws. Um, it also allows them to significantly enhance without violating Stark, um, uh, benefits that can be provided to physicians that are employees or independent contractors uh, of the health plan, I mean, of the, the health system. And, and actually, that's that's a great point. Let's, let's flesh that out a little bit, if you don't mind, with regard to the Stark law and how this can be beneficial, because um, I think that's something that, that could really affect a lot of the folks listening to the podcast. So with any Stark thing, the, 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 the nomenclature is uh, fair market value, right? If I'm a health system, I can give Dr. Wurzberg an office. I just have to be able to charge him fair market value for that office. It can't be given to him as an inducement to admit people to my facility or something else that's prohibited under Stark. But the fact that you have a lease with me under my owned building across the parking lot isn't a violation of Stark. Same thing with insurance. Now, fair market value can be 
maneuvered, there's a lot of gray in that. So if, for instance, your health insurance, your medical malpractice insurance being Dr. Wurzberg PA was going to cost you X number of dollars in a commercial market, but I can shave 15% off of that, still consider it fair market value and sell it to you through my captive insurance company, then I've sort of killed two birds with one stone. I've, I've not violated Stark, but I have given you um, an inducement to be on my campus, admit patients to my hospital, um, and it's still insurance. It works like any other insurance company, but I'm the one that controls it. You know, one, one more provider side question. Let's say I'm advising a, a physician practice. Talk to me about what sort of size I should be thinking about recommending this to, and, and what is the case that I make to them of, of, hey, you know, you should really talk to Willis, Willis Tower Watson about this because this might be a good move for you. So actuarially speaking, all this is based on actuary because it's an insurance company. Um, there has to be a um, bang for the buck. It wouldn't make any sense as a sole practitioner or a small rural hospital to do that because you can buy this coverage commercially. Medical malpractice is available out there. You can certainly sign up for a workers' comp you know, issue, particularly if it's state funded as opposed to commercially funded. Um, so you, you need to be of a size to where your spend, what you're paying in the commercial marketplace for your insurance coverage uh, is a, an amount that would, if you retained it over time, make sense. Uh, let's use an example. Um, if you had a, a practice of size, you were spending a million dollars a year, I'm making these numbers up, uh, for your insurance. You had $10 million of coverage for that million dollars. You would have a deductible or a self-insured retention as an SIR uh, on the bottom end of that. It could be $50, it could be $100,000, whatever you have selected, uh, just like car insurance, it's your deductible. Uh, so when you do that, if you add up 10 years, you've spent $10 million to have $10 million in insurance coverage, assuming there wasn't any inflation so that it wasn't, you were spending, you know, $12 million for $10 million in insurance. And if you didn't have any claims over those 10 years, you just given someone else $12 million and you have nothing. So in that situation, if you had been banking that money in your own captive and you had the same claims experience, which was zero at the end of 10 years, you'd have $12 million sitting in your captive and company, which would be surplus. It's taxed at a different rate than it would be if it was in your other hands. It could be returned back to the parent corporation as dividends. It could be used to cover the cost of other lines that you could put in there. You could put your property insurance in there now. You could have, because you have surplus in your captive, you could use it to buy reinsurance that might cover the captive for its own loss. But there has to be a a size figure in there. It wouldn't make any sense if your insurance spend was $100,000. 
because between the cost of starting a captive, managing a captive, compliance, regulatory compliance with the captive, all of that, which is expensive, you know, you wouldn't be saving any money. There wouldn't be any reason for doing it that way for those purposes. There are other reasons, you know, for, for putting the money in a captive versus keeping it on the books of a parent company, um, keeping the money offshore versus keeping it onshore, uh, the tax advantages of being taxed as an insurance company, getting the tax deduction for sending the money as premium to the, the captive and then get it back as a dividend, which is taxed at a different rate. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but none of that makes any sense unless we're talking about a sizable amount of money, which is why it's health systems, not individual hospitals. Individual hospitals and smaller groups may join the RG situation where they join a group of people. It's sort of like a um, consumer group. They call them OCGs. Um, I've forgotten what OCG stands for, but uh, it, it's an, uh, a group purchasing entity uh, usually used for buying toilet paper or whatever else that people might need in a group. You know, if you have 10 hospitals, you can join one of these things. They buy it all together. You get the economies of scale, et cetera, et cetera. And RRD is just the same. It's just for, for insurance as opposed to products. And now we'll take a moment to recognize our Health Law Section sponsors. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Alex Partners and Pinnacle Health. Now back to the program. All right, so let's let's turn now to kind of the other side of the house and, and let's think of, about managed care and captive insurance. Talk, talk to me about how captives fit into to that side of the coin. Certainly. So group captives are um, common with healthcare providers. They are not common with managed care companies. Uh, managed care companies, remember, are insurance companies, for lack of a better phrase, themselves already. Um, and it's second nature oftentimes for them to start another insurance company to insure themselves. But they don't want to spread risk. They don't want to have uh, that against others. Um, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association tried that for a long time with a company called BCS, uh, which is still in existence and does provide group coverage for, for on the cyber side. But they exited the ENO and DNO markets. Uh, a while back because it just wasn't making much sense and the, and the insureds didn't want to be in a pool with the other companies because the other companies were so large. So uh, single parent captives are much more common in managed care days. And, and some managed care companies use those just the same way providers do by running their workers comp through it. Um, maybe having their GL coverage, general liability coverage through it. Uh, they may put in a, a line in there where it's hard to get. Uh, commercial auto is not very easy coverage these days to get, um, particularly when it's unowned auto. Uh, I just asked Lyft and, and Uber that, uh, which is why they have very, very large captives out in Hawaii um, because they couldn't get a commercial insurance coverage for it had to do it themselves. So in this situation, managed care entities are finding it more and more and more difficult to get coverage 
for things like antitrust coverage, government regulatory expenses and claims, FCA claims, um, claims related to pharma, opioid issues, et cetera. The commercial markets don't want to cover those because they're catastrophic losses. Usually when you have a claim that is associated with out-of-network billing, for instance, the MDL litigation that's going on in Alabama at the moment, those have caused a very, very restricted market. So the commercial insurance carriers don't want to provide coverage for those lines or risks. So unless an entity such as a managed care company of size creates an insurance company to insure themselves for it, the coverage isn't available or it's not available at a price that makes any sense. So that's what they're using them for uh, at the moment. Um, terms and conditions for coverage, as well as flexibility for business strategy. That's another thing that managed care is a little bit different on the provider side. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago when I started this, you know, managed care companies were managed care companies. They were basically, you know, an entity that provided health benefits. Well, those days are gone. There are companies like that out there still, but then you have the $300 billion a year thing that is United Health Group, um, where 50% of their revenue is non-premium. They have their fingers in every pie. Domestically, foreignly, they are involved. They are constantly acquiring and building new companies, and all of the rest of the companies are following them. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has Accident Fund, one of the largest workers' comp entities out there. Uh, Anthem uh, has providers now, as well as 14 different Blue Cross Blue Shield plans. Aetna is part of CVS now. Cigna owns Express Scripts. They, you know, it, they are morphing as fast as a transformer in a movie. And in order to have that kind of flexibility to move like that, as your company is moving if you don't have a captive insurance company, it's very difficult. With a captive insurance company, you, you just can alter your own terms and conditions. Uh, you have to get regulatory approval for that. But you, that's usually much easier than it is going through the commercial market, particularly for something that is outside of what your core business is. So it provides a great deal of flexibility. Plus, it's an asset. And if you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on insurance coverage, because remember, there's a stop loss component to this as well. It's not just the errors and emissions coverage and your DNO coverage, um, your property coverage, depending upon what you own. All of those things are dwarfed in terms of premium dollars by your own, uh, what I refer to as HMO re or the stop loss for the health plans. And then there's a thing called ASO stop loss administrative services only, where the health plans act as TPAs for self-insured plans and then offer them employee stop loss for their own health plan through the insurance company. And a lot of these companies used to do that uh, as an administrative accounting maneuver. And then the light went on one day in their heads. And they went, hey, we're insurance companies. Um, you know, we can sell insurance policies for this. And then they turn around and they either sell them through the captive or they sell them through the parent and use the captive as a reinsurance company for themselves. So 
and that's millions and millions of dollars in, in premiums as opposed to the other way. So some of these captives are used sparingly. They're used only for looks, you know, um, giggles you know, or comp or something like that. Some of them, you know, have hundreds of millions of dollars of risk running through the captive. And that's how the managed care entities are beginning to use them by using them for more and more and more risk transfer. So let's, let's talk about, I, I'm, let's go back to the idea of Dr. Wurzberg, which, uh, you know. You have your, your, you know, your glasses, your doctor glasses on today. What, what could have been. Um, so I want to start a captive. How do I choose where, where I'm domiciled? What, what considerations am I thinking about? Well, first of all, you have to make a decision as to um, which states or foreign governments you want to deal with. Um, the primary foreign governments are Cayman Islands and Bermuda. Um, and as I said before, I think there are 30, maybe 31 states that have domicile law. So if you happen to be in California, you will not be able to have a captive domiciled in California because California does not have a domicile law. So you'd have to go to another state. Arizona has one, for instance. Um, most healthcare providers, or many of them, I don't want to say most, probably the majority, use offshore. The, the captives are headquartered in Cayman or, or in Bermuda. Uh, most managed care entities keep their captive um, either in one of the stalwarts like Hawaii or Vermont, or they use their own state. So if you are headquartered in Arizona and you start a captive uh, and you're a managed care company, you're probably going to want to domicile your captive in Arizona because the regulators who regulate your other interests, you know, ha only have to walk down this hall to the regulators that are regulating your captive. You already know each other. There are a lot of benefits uh, associated with that as well as the fact that if you domicile your captive in the same state where you were located, then the insurance is called admitted, which has different tax ramifications uh, at the state level um, than it would if you had an ENS or excess and surplus lines carrier from another state. So if your captive was located in Vermont and they're insuring you in Arizona, um, you may have to pay taxes on that to the state of Arizona. Uh, there are other considerations with regard to that as well, but you pick that and then you'd pick a, a state that had a domicile law that allowed you to do what you want to do with your captive with the least amount of administrative headache. Well, uh, my captive will be in, in the Cayman Islands, so be on the lookout for the first annual meeting. Yeah, so there are there are requirements. It is an insurance company, and they are they are regulated as such. So you have to have a board of directors. That board of directors has to meet usually once, sometimes more than once a year, in order to meet the re regulatory requirements of any given domicile. And that captive uh, board meeting, except during COVID, um, had to normally be in the state or location of the domicile. So it was not uncommon for people to pick Hawaii, the Caymans or Bermuda for the domicile of their insurance company because, hey, I get to go to Bermuda twice a year at someone else's expense. I'm certainly still on that for, for my captives. So let's talk about from, um, from the, the 
lawyers side of, of captives. What, what do lawyers do with, with captives? Okay. So a lot of people think that all you have to do with regard to a captive is go to, you know, zoom legal or legal zoom, whatever they call it, or download something off the internet and fill out the, the paperwork and sending it in. And if you do that, then I have a bridge to sell you wherever I can find a bridge. Um, it, it's a complicated thing. Uh, doing it wrong can have some very, very serious ramifications. There are a lot of people that did 831B um, captives, micro captives, that were using them for specific risks. Um, the IRS took a hard look at them and decided, you know, that's not really insurance. So all those tax benefits you got for the last 10 years, we want it all back. And it caused a lot of trouble. Um, having the right lawyers, you know, on the, the job, you need to pick somebody who has captive regulatory and implementation experience. But the compliance piece of it is complicated and the building of a captive is complicated. Um, you need lawyers to help build out the policy language because remember it's an insurance company. If you're gonna put your, your medical malpractice or your E&O coverage for a managed care company into a captive, you have to have an insurance policy has to come from somewhere. I mean, you can use someone else's or, but you know, most of those, if you're using it for terms and conditions, you want to write your own insurance policy. It's usually good to have a lawyer involved in that. Um, I've always found that to be the case. Uh, having um, lawyers be involved uh, in ongoing compliance, such as uh, the board of directors for the captive to ensure that the board is doing what it's doing in order to maintain its status under whatever domicile law, law is involved. Um, having tax lawyers involved for the tax consequences of domicile. So there's um, most insurance these days, particularly in this field are written on claims made forms so that every year the policy flips over again. And if the claim is made during that policy year, the claim goes to that policy year, regardless of when the actual activity that is the wrongful act took place. On an occurrence made policy, the policy that is involved is the policy that ha uh, was involved or that was active at the time when the wrongful act occurred. So if you did something wrong in 2015 and the claim was made in 2022 under a claims made policy, it's the 2022 policy that matters. Under recurrence, it, it's the 2015 policy that matters. So if you have occurrence policies in a captive, you get to build up reserves over years because you don't know what's coming in the pike in the future. So actuarially, you can have determined that I need this much in reserves in order to satisfy future obligations that may relate to 2015. Well, that if you do that, then you don't have to pay taxes on that money because it's reserves. You don't have to pay taxes on reserves, only on underwriting profit. So that's pulled out of the uh, thing. And you need a tax lawyer on that. I, I can say what I just said. And beyond that, you need a tax lawyer. <laughs> so, and I am not a tax lawyer. But it, those are the things that lawyers do with captives, um, but you need to use one. Um, I was talking to a guy the, the other day, um, Matt 
Horgan. He's at Gordon Reese in Pittsburgh. He worked with us a lot on captives. Um, there's a lot of other firms, um, your own firm, um, the um, Reed Smith firm in, in, out of Chicago. A lot of firms have dedicated captive people. Uh, plus, remember something, since it's an insurance company, particularly if it's a provider side captive or you have your workers comp in the, the captive, there are going to be claims. Somebody's got to handle the claims because a captive insurance company, even if it's owned by Dr. Wurzberg, Dr. Wurzberg can't treat it as a bank. He has to treat it as an insurance company and it has the same limitations. You can't violate your policy language in order to get coverage because it's your own insurance company, particularly if you have excess carriers over the top of it. So if you get excess coverage in a tower over the top of a captive policy, they don't have to follow your terms and conditions. And if you start monkeying around with your insur your, your captive company, they're not going to agree to insure you because they don't trust the captive. I've had to recommend to clients that their captive deny their parents claim because they blew a notice requirement or it wasn't a covered claim and you, you can't fudge that stuff because it's got to be treated as a separate and distinct company and you need lawyers to help you do that. So I think I feel like we could have done a podcast on each of the individual subjects we, we touched on today but in closing, let, let me ask you if, if, is there an elevator speech or, you know, in the military, they call it the, the bluff, the bottom line up, up front when talking about captives and, and healthcare that you'd like to, to leave everyone with? Sure. If you want to have greater flexibility, um, have uh, better outcomes with regard to volatility and risk transfer. Um, and have the ability to ensure a business strategy from an asset purpose, a captive insurance company is something that you should look at, but it is not a panacea. It does not fix all problems and there are downsides to them. So um, captive feasibility study, uh, captive 101, 201, 301, uh, learning about what they can and cannot do and then having an actuarial study done to determine whether or not it's a good idea for your entity, that's the way to go. And those you need people like my company or you know lawyers who are engaged in this to, to work with you on it. Because it can be a great thing. It can also be quicksand. Well, with that, uh, Kenny White, National Managed Care Practice Leader for Willis Towers Watson. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening to us today. Take care. Thank you.